Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, here we are in this beautiful virtual space. Uh, we have an amazing reading for you tonight. Thank you so much for joining us here on Crowdcast. Um, my name is Maddie Gobo. I am the events manager at Skylight Books. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. But you are probably coming from all over the place. I saw someone's here from New Zealand. Uh, you might win the award for the longest distance guest so far. So uh, congratulations. And um, we'd love for you to say hi over there in the chat. So um, if you're new to Crowdcast, I'll just give you a quick little tour of all the features. Um, so up here is the stage. You can see me, Tom and Janet, um, our readers for this evening. Uh, and over on the right side, you'll see a little chat box. Um, it says, say something nice, keep that in mind. Um, but you're welcome to uh, say hello. Um, you can ask your questions there. There's also a little ask a question feature that kind of pulls those out for us to see, um, makes it a little easier to catch. Um, so either way, we'll be taking questions throughout the event and we'll um, do kind of a Q&A portion at the end. So you can submit those whenever you're ready. Um, I'll keep an eye out. Uh, let's see, what else? We also have um, a little green button at the bottom of the screen that says order event books here. So if you haven't already ordered Tom's book, um, that is a link to the Skylight Books website where you can order the book. Uh, it, you can either have it shipped to you, we ship anywhere uh, in the United States and Canada. And um, we also do curbside pickup. The store is also open for browsing. So if you live in LA, you're welcome to stop by. If you wear a mask, please wear a mask. Everyone knows. <laughs> um, and let's see, there's one other uh, feature I just wanted to point out. There's also a donate button um, down at the bottom of your screen. And uh, that's just uh, an option that we have out there for you. Um, you know, indie bookstores are struggling right now and every little bit helps. So if you have it, a couple bucks to chip in, we would love that so much. And it would help us continue um, putting on great virtual events like this. So uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, I'll be the host this evening, so I'll be kind of running the show behind the scenes. Um, but without you know too much further ado, I'm gonna go ahead and turn this over to our authors tonight. Um, yeah, oh my gosh, I'm just looking at where you guys are all coming in. Alberta, Baltimore, welcome, welcome. Um, we're so happy to have you. All right. So <laughs> tonight we have 
Tom Rastrelli, in conversation with Janet Fitch about his debut memoir, Confessions of a Gay Priest. Welcome, Tom and Janet. Thank you for being here tonight. Thanks, Maddie. Great to be here. Thank you. Um, I'm going to read your bios so everyone can get to know you a little bit. Uh, Janet Fitch is an American author and teacher of fi fiction writing. She is the author of the number one national bestseller, White Oleander, a novel translated into 24 languages, an Oprah book club pick, and the basis of a feature film, Paint It Black, also widely translated and made into a 2017 film, and her epic novels of the Russian Revolution, The Revolution of Marina M, and Chimes of the Lost Cathedral. Additionally, she has written a young adult novel, Kits, short stories, essays, articles, and reviews contributed to anthologies and regularly teaches at the Squaw Valley Community of Writers. She lives in Los Angeles and travels whenever she gets the chance. And Janet, I see you in, at Skylight all the time. You are a, a regular. So it's nice to see you here in the virtual space too. Um, good to see all you. Right. Thank you. <laughs> all right, and tonight's featured author. Tom Rastrelli grew up in Clinton, Iowa in a very Catholic family. While studying acting at the University of Northern Iowa in 1994, he returned to church after a year away hoping to find healing from childhood wounds. He embarked on a tenure journey into the Catholic seminary and system of priestly formation. After graduating from St. Mary's Seminary and University in Baltimore, Maryland in 2002, Tom was ordained a priest for the Archdiocese of Dubuque, Iowa in the midst of the early days of the sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic church. Let's just say that didn't go well. He left the church and priesthood in 2004. Since then, he's worked as a temp worker, food server, assistant to a literary agent, research assistant, writer, reporter, and is currently director of digital communications at Willamette University. He graduated from the University of Southern California with a master of professional writing in 2011. He lives in Salem, Oregon with his husband, Bruce. Confessions of a Gay Priest is his first published book. Welcome, Tom. Thank you for being here tonight. Thanks, Maddie, and thanks to everyone at Skylight. Thanks, Janet. and. I'm excited. Thank you all for coming tonight. Um, I'm going to kind of disappear. And um, Tom, you're going to start us off with a reading. You ready to go? Sure. Let's do it. <laughs> all right. All right. So I'm going to begin tonight with a reading. And um, the to set it up, you just need to know that I am, it's pretty far into the book. I am now in Baltimore and I am in seminary. And you're going to see a couple of my um, brother seminarians in this in this section, and um, those are Abdel and Mick, and and then I also am seeing a counselor, and this is my tenth counselor, and so the counselors are known by numbers; they aren't known by names. So this is counselor number ten. So this is from the chapter "Spiritual Exercises." I ripped off my t-shirt, eager to toss myself into the warm Atlantic waters off Assateague Island National Seashore, just south of Ocean City. The summer in Iowa had been great. At my eight-week parish placement, placement, I'd preached, presided over wake services, and brought communion to shut-ins. I'd avoided Father Scott and Father Foley and maintained my celibacy. I'd missed the ocean and my brother's seminarians. With his Caribbean tan, Abdel darted for the water, while Irish-skinned Mick and I smudged sunblock across our chests. You're so white, I need welding glasses, Mick said. You're like Father Weiss white. Weiss was our canon lawyer and an albino. I handed him the sunblock. Will you get my back, please? As he slicked down my spine, I felt no attraction, no discomfort. 
I'd come so far since my first trip to Ocean City. With your Robin Williams arms, I thought you'd have a hairy back, he said. Just shut up and finish. In spite of an offshore storm, we ran toward the rough water. The waves weren't huge, maybe three feet high. They broke not in orderly pipelines, but in choppy segments like an oncoming stampede of Assateague's miniature horses. As I sloshed into the water, a current ripped my feet from under me. The breakers pummeled and rolled me along the shore. Mick reeled me in and steadied me up on the foamy sand. Abdel floated by, by clapping, Buen trabajo, Tommy, a divinely inspired wipeout. I bowed, gracias, papacito. A few weeks earlier, Abdel had visited me in Iowa. We'd hiked the bluffs of the Mississippi, wandered through corn mazes, and relaxed with my family and friends. We'd developed a playful banter in which we often made shit of each other as a sign of respect and humility. Mutual effacing humor wasn't in my familial repertoire, but it flowed naturally with Abdel and Mick. Since swimming and body surfing were too risky, we settled on our towels and watched the seabirds whip along the current. Pat had invited us to his sister's beach house for a few days to reconnect before our classes and his pastoral year began, but he'd refused to come to the beach, preferring to mope alone. Whatever, the rest of us could bond. What's the worst thing you've ever done? I asked, hoping to build some intimacy. Abdel grabbed some Coronas from the cooler. Mick ran his fingers through his slick back hair, black hair and streaked with silver. Why? We're going to hear everyone's worst in the confessional, so let's see what it feels like. It all stays here under the seal. They agreed. Over the breeze, Mick's rough voice rippled with gentle vulnerability as he spun a remorseful tale of sleeping with a married woman years ago. As his eyes softened, I noticed Abdel's brown eyes tightened with something that looked like anger, intimidation, or guilt. When Mick finished, I knew exactly what to share. Plus, my story would loosen Abdel. When I was 13, I hatched a plan to get back at a neighborhood girl who sicked her dog, the same Cujo that attacked my sister on my guy friends. I gleaned the revenge plot from Fred Savage's character in the family film, The Boy Who Could Fly. To get back at the girl, we boys took turns pissing into a rapid fire squirt gun and then ambushed her. The mist from the waves pelted my sunglasses. Abdel's sullen gaze had intensified. Seriously, Mick snapped and tossed his empty bottle into the cooler. I confess adultery and you a childhood prank? Have you ever pissed on someone, I retorted. Shit, Mick rolled his eyes. I'm done confessing. Abdel? Abdel's generous smile and dimple were gone. Guys, he shook his head. I, I can't do this. He hurried off, skirting the tempestuous shore. Mick expelled a toxic sigh. Fuck you guys. He twisted open another beer, took a long swig, and pulled his towel over his face. I recalled how our human sexuality professor had described the challenge of celibates to build and maintain intimate relationships. She called us porcupines squeezing together for warmth. She was right, I said to Ten. He grinned painfully. So what are you going to do about it? At a loss, I babbled. This wasn't how I wanted to start the year. I'd be ordained a deacon in March and promise lifelong celibacy and obedience to my bishop and his successors. I had the support of my family, my archdiocese, and the seminary staff, which had just awarded me the Cardinal Sheehan Scholarship. My sister called the scholarship the most valuable seminarian award. Many at, the, at school thought of it as the Brown Noser Award. 
I liked to think of it as the Future Bishops of America Award. Not that I wanted any of that. First, I had to get ordained a deacon and then a priest, which meant I had to master celibacy. I hadn't acted out with anyone in over a year, but I was still masturbating. The church taught that masturbation was a self-centered, gratuitous pleasure and against the natural law. For nature revealed that every orgasm had to take place inside a vagina and be open to procreation. Masturbatory fantasies were an affront to the dignity of the human person because they reduced God's holy people to sex objects. An erection is just an erection, a normal physical reaction to an attraction or physical stimulus, Ten said. It has no power over you. I lifted my forearm from the dusty upholstery and scratched. Well, then why can't I stop? If you have an itch, you scratch it, right? I stopped working my arm, but this is different. Without thinking, I glanced at his crotch for any signs of arousal. None. He was incredible. It's not different. His legs maintained their relaxed, wide stance. If he'd noticed my downward peak, he'd indicated nothing. He calmly continued, your body's wired for sex. When you focus on an erection, hormones and physical discomfort build until you have to relieve the pressure. You can't fight bodily urges head on, so you need to. I don't want to repress my sexuality. Why would I repress something that's supposed to be a gift from God? I'm not saying that. He tapped his fingers on the arm of the chair. Repression only makes things worse. It leads to acting out, sometimes with tragic consequences. What you need to do is sidestep the urges. When I got an erection or caught myself fantasizing, I was to imagine an internet explorer-like window containing my sexual thoughts. I was to click on my list of favorites, which he and I were going to fill with more life-giving activities than self-gratification. By opening up one of these alternative favorite websites, I could distract myself and engage in a celibate, no less intimate activity. We brainstormed options. The prescriptions of the pre-Vatican II church before the development of sexual psychology, we scorned. Cold showers were a joke, as was the old seminary maxim, keep your hands above the sheets. Physical mortification by way of whipping or puncturing the skin with a barbed belt or garter was way too medieval and opus dei for me. and made little sense because the body was the temple of the Holy Spirit. Ten conjured more psychologically evolved practices. One favorite, was to go to the gym, but only if no one attractive was exercising. I could also practice my guitar, which would leave my uncalloused fingers stinging in no mood for groping. Another option was to watch TV in my bedroom or study in my office with the door open. I could refocus on work and fill my day with so many priestly tasks that when I collapsed into bed at night, I was too tired to jerk off. Yay. Well, Tom, congratulations on the book being published. Um, I first saw uh, parts of this book as fiction when Tom was in a fiction workshop with me in at USC. So to see it become a memoir, a full-length book, and this is uh, probably one of the tamer sections that he just read. Uh, this book is very blunt about 
the experience, Tom's experience in the, um, in the seminary, his dealing with childhood sexual abuse at the hands of his pediatrician, and how that kind of opened, it kind of opened you up to further abuse. You know, people think about, uh, sometimes they worry that people who have been abused will continue a cycle um, of perpetrating abuse, but in fact, it actually leaves the victim open to more abuse. And that, you know, that's a big, um, it's more than a thread in the book. It is like a giant seam uh, in the book. And I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little about um, about how the childhood abuse seemed to weave its way through your experiences in the church. Sure. Um, well, the 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 scene of the childhood abuse is in the book, and that the way I wrote that scene pretty much set the I guess. The, the way I was going to approach those scenes that if I would, if I were going to write a book about sexual abuse, the sex had to be in it. I mean, I wanted people to see it and go through it as I did. So they could experience the confusion and disorientation that I experienced. Um, that was the goal. Of, I mean, that's why you write a memoir instead of a biography or fiction. You want them to you want to bring people into your experience so they can live it. And that theme, it did set me up because the way I learned to masturbate was getting sexually abused. And that completely just altered my whole understanding of sexuality. And, and it opened me up to guilt and confusion and the whole experience of growing up in the middle of the AIDS epidemic where you're hearing things called the gay cancer and you're seeing televangelists um, pray over gay kids and try to exercise the gay demons out of them. And then they'd say, because they've been sexually abused and they became, so they'll be gay and they'll be abusers and all these voices. And there weren't any gay role models in my life. That's something as a gay kid, you just don't have. You don't have role models. And if you're in the closet, your parents aren't gonna know that that you need some role models in that way. And so it really set me up to be very vulnerable because of all those things, being in the closet, what I'm hearing in the 80s and in the early 90s. And I, I needed healing. And when after the disassociation that I did with the abuse, like it had always happened to me, but it, even saying the abuse is a disassociation. Having been abused, it happened to this other me it didn't really happen to me. I was perfect. I got straight A's, was a, you know, got leads in plays, made all state choir. I was a leader. I just, I had to be perfect in order to prove to myself that it didn't affect me. And that all set me up for a big fall in college when my theater studies weren't going as well as I wanted to. And, and I was very much in need of affirmation and sexual healing and spiritual healing. And so I went back to the church 
seeking some answers because I'd stopped going to church and was angry at the church because of the sexual abuse that was in the papers at that time in the 80s and the early 90s. And I went back with the intention of learning and then that learning that I wouldn't agree with it. But I, I felt like since I had been raised Catholic, I needed to learn about it before I left it to be sure that I was making the right choice. And all of that to answer your question, I'm sorry, this is a long answer, but how that thread began. No. I was just so vulnerable and needy and then it just took off and I got in with these priests that were charismatic and they, they had similar gifts as me and suddenly I had role models and then it all went south. <laughs> and then it all went south very quickly. Yeah, uh, let's talk about the celibacy and uh, the demand for celibacy of the Catholic priest. Um, I mean, what a torturous thing it was. You know, at this point, you're really trying to to be straight, and I don't mean straight in the cis sense of it, but honest. You know, just that you want life to be what you see is what you get, and you find a, a course that seems, you know, a, an honest reflection of who, who you are. Mm -hmm. And then the demands of celibacy, I mean, how, as a living, breathing, emotional human being, you know, how do you fit yourself into that? Well, within the worldview of the Catholic Church, the only option you have if you are gay or lesbian is to be celibate. You're, you don't have a choice. Any sort of sexual act that you commit, you know, I mean, that's the negative language there, but any act that you would commit or any acting out, which was another term that you would do was a sin. Masturbation was a sin. Um, doing anything with someone of the same sex was a sin, anything except for vaginal sex with the intention of having a baby was considered not right in the Catholic Church. And the church considered you intrinsically disordered. That's the teaching in the Catholic Church for people who, as they say in the Catholic Church, have a same sex attraction. And so the only option you have as a Catholic is to be celibate. So why not become a priest? And then you can pass even more as a straight Catholic, you know, meaning straight and narrow Catholic. You know, you're praised for it. You're at the top of the food chain. You're praised for your gifts. And nobody asks about whether or not you're gay because you're celibate. So it, it kind of... And a good number up. of the priests... And a good number of the priests that you meet and the seminarians are gay. Yeah. You know, that's a that's a, evidently quite a tradition. So it's very confusing. Yeah, it it and everybody's in the closet too. I mean, almost everybody. I I don't recall meeting priests that were out of the closet um at all. Um and and yeah, it, it I would say it was probably there's no way to know for sure that I would say it was probably 80%, maybe 85% of the guys in the seminary were probably gay. I mean, it, it was overwhelming. And there are a lot of reasons for that. I think that in the post Vatican II church, gay men, they're, they're, they're were affective and 
charismatic and preachers and singers and counselors and people who are in helping profession, they, they want to be in helping professions. Whereas in the pre-Vatican II church before the 60s, the church was very closed and the priests, like the, one of the first things you had to do when you were a priest was coach a sports team. I mean, that's completely opposite of, of a stereotypical gay thing. And so, you know, the priests were very much authoritarian and institutional and, and business managers. And suddenly after the Vatican, Council, Second Vatican Council, all the skills needed to be a priest are things that are stereotypically gay and gay traits. So I think that with that combined with the requirement to be celibate if you're Catholic and the guilt around that, it just seems like a good place for gay men to go. And and then you know you see you sense that about them. There's something similar to me. You know you're attracted to that. There's some energy here. There's something good and fun and i feel at home with these people and i was drawn in and the you know you were um abused again by uh uh two of the priests that you were closest to um yeah everybody i everybody really... was struggling sorry no, go on. Well, I, I really consider, I mean, when I look at it, there are really three priests. I mean, um, two that, one that assaulted me and exploited me, but another one that, you know, had sex with me. And then, and then there was, I mean, there was another, the Father Hunter was I mean, verbally abusive and psychologically abusive and used his power to control me he knew he knew i was gay because i had been a seminarian you know he's the one who told me to lie about being gay and it then he used that against me to control me so it was a lot of there was a lot of abuse of power in the structure and then when you went to your spiritual quote-unquote spiritual advisor your archbishop mm -hmm. um the person who was supposed to be helping you through the shoals of, of all this, um, he turned out to be a very difficult person in your, in your life. Yeah. Ultimately. Yes. I mean that, that, that I get into some of the, the theology of the church as well. And there was this whole idea that you know the priest is the human expression or extension of the archbishop because the archbishop has to be the the administrator and the priest put a the priest put a human face and human experience on the archbishop but i mean until as you see in the book till very late in the book i only had one private meeting with this archbishop that was less than like 20 minutes long or less than a half hour and I was supposed to be swearing my obedience to him for life. I mean, it's, it's, you'd think you'd really, the bishop would really want to get to know people that are going to be swearing obedience to him, but, or be known to them. But well, you start looking, right. You start looking at this person, you thinking like we were saying earlier, it's like the czar. If only the czar knew, then all this would be taken care of. If only, I can get the archbishop to understand what's going on. 
you know, that this abuse could, you know, he could guide me through this. And it turns out that he was just protecting the institution. Exactly. And went on to find out that he had done this in two previous assignments as well, in um, one at Conception Abbey in Missouri and one in um, the St. Cloud Diocese in St. John's Collegeville area in Minnesota. So he was well practiced by the time by the time I came forward with um, my experience and my accusations. So, yeah, I was something fighting. Something you talked about. Sorry, go on. No, you go ahead. I, I was done. Something that you talked about in the book that I found fascinating was the, um, like, where does sexuality go when people are struggling to be celibate and deal with the repression of sexual urge. And you said one of the things that, uh, well, one of the things they used to do is just like whip, whip themselves and castigate themselves. And I mean, it's very harsh, but I would imagine that was some relief, you know, to I'm bad, you know, and you get the cat of nine tails out. I mean, it's some relief on a physical level, but also you were saying that it feeds into the experience of the mysticism of the church. Yeah. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, two things. Before I get to the mysticism, that reminded me of something else. So you, in that passage I just read, and that's the chapter where I really start digging in deep into the, the seminary formation, which is their word. I like to call it deformation now, but they called it formation where they form us to be good priests and obedient and basically give you all this philosophy training and they give you all these intellectual like weapons and intellectual tools and then after you've gotten all of that then they teach you all of the church theology that basically takes those weapons and wields them for the church and 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 bends everything to the will of the church so they give you this ability to really think and then kind of take it away in a very sinister way that that controls you and part of that with the celibacy, why I brought that up is that you're studying human sexuality as well, but through the lens of this system. And this was seen as being more evolved than the old self-mortification things that would have been done before the Vatican II and that were more historical, but still happen today. There are still people who wear, you know, those garters that, that, that pinched them or cut them and whipped themselves. But that seemed too medieval and, and just wrong to me. But what happened was psychologically, I was doing those exact same things to myself. In this chapter where we get this Internet Explorer thing, throughout the chapter, you see how I keep trying different things in this mind game and they keep failing. And at the end, what I was taught to do was to just picture a big red stop sign in my head and scream stop at myself mentally or even out loud if no one was around, just stop, 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 stop. Just from thinking about anything sexual, having any sort of, and you know, when you're in your twenties, you're waking up with erections, you're, you're, you're so attracted to people and you're in a house full of men and you're gay. So I mean, you're going to have attractions. So it became a very much self-mortification in the psychological sense. So that's one place 
where the energy is going. The other place is we're learning about sex, human sexuality and that it's more, and this, I, this is still true. There were still some good things of what I learned, that your sexuality is more than just your genitality. It's your entire relationality, your entire um, interaction with wanting to connect and commune with people in the world. And just the whole, the whole desire to know and love and to be loved and to be known is part of your sexual energy. So you start trying to to separate those two things. And what happens is you're also learning that you're supposed to give your whole self to God and channel all of your desire and energy into God. So I, some of us, and this is what I did, started channeling all of that sexual attraction and energy into my prayer and into trying to build an intimate relationship with this unknown being and with Jesus or feel the Holy Spirit. And, and what starts to happen is the mind's a powerful tool. You start having some physical sexual experiences in your prayer that maybe don't involve touching yourself. And you start having some ecstasies and some orgasms and it gets, it can get intense. It did for me, it did for another friend of mine in seminary and it's, I don't know, that gave me a completely different understanding of the mystics. And we, I, I talked about this in the last reading, but like Teresa of Avila, and this is described in the book, the statue of her in ecstasy. I mean, she looks like she's having, she, she is having an orgasm. So, and that kind of makes sense when you think about it, if you're the bride of Christ, or if, you know, you're giving your full self to God, that this sexual energy is part of that full self. So I don't know if that helps explain some of it, but no, it makes it makes sense. It makes sense, and it it uh, um, it's an engine. You know, it's a spiritual engine, uh, and those mystics are. You know, they're a lot of the saints are the mystics. But you had an interesting comment about the mystics and the church's feelings about the mystics. Oh, yeah. Well, that I mean, I mean, a lot of the people who are saints were not liked by the church while they were alive. In fact, many of them were killed by the church or the um, allies of the church. But you think like Joan of Arc or Oscar Romero and you think of other saints like Thomas Aquinas was not liked during his life, his theologies were condemned. And then after he dies, suddenly, you know, this becomes codified. This is the way the church is thinking now. And everything since his time is now based upon his theology. And, or, and it's one of the things that I find really um, sinister about the church now is that they take martyrs that they killed and that they silenced, and then they turn them into saints to keep the people who were those saints fans or people who have similar spiritualities, you know, or, or theological perspectives in the church. Cause then now, oh, well, they're a saint. So I, they're like me, but they were people who were killed, some of them by the church. And that just to me is really, it's, it's part of that system of control, a much larger long-term system. But I experienced that as well as the you know, that formation system, the short-term control. Yeah, the, the 
so, I mean, some of the uh, book to going from the your childhood abuse, there was a pediatrician mm -hmm. um, who um, everyone went to and your family went to and nobody thought a thing of it until your brother started having problems and you you were still in college yeah i was um i was in my junior year of college so this would have been the first year that i was when i was discerning priesthood and feeling called to the priesthood and my brother just seemed to be having a hard time at school. I was hearing things from my mom and that he was just sad a lot. And, um, and I had seen the doctor over the summer at the um, country club where I was a waiter and had a panic attack. And that was, and also I had been having weird things happen in acting exercises during the previous year. So my psychological boundaries around having been abused were breaking down. And when I saw the doctor, I realized it had really impacted me that it wasn't something that happened to this little Tom, little Tommy on the side. It happened to me. It happened to perfect Tom or whatever I was thinking of myself at the time, you know, having to be perfect. And then that school year, um, seeing my brother struggle and I realized, you know, he's the age I was when I got abused by the doctor. And I became very afraid that that he was being abused as well. And that's when I told my 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 family that this had happened to me. And then that's that's a thread that's through the first um, couple sections of the book. And the thing that's really another sinister thing is how these priests who were manipulating me also used that and used counseling me about that as a tool to control me and a weapon to punish me if I didn't do what they wanted me to do. And it's, um, and, and you see in the first few sections of the book, what it's like to go through depositions and what it's the, the whole way that a predator can. Right, because you took that doctor to court. I did. Yeah, I did. Right, because you put, you took that doctor to court as a college student. As a college student. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and, and the crazy thing is, is that this priest that was such a support to me ends up being then my perpetrator as I'm going through this. It was, it's, it's really, is really a confusing and difficult and awful time um, and confusing. But and then one you have of another little, little, you saw him again. So I was wondering if you would read that. Yeah. So one of the things that I, I'm going to read another section here, it's much shorter than the last one. This is from earlier in the book, and this is, um, I just need to quick set up that I'm going to a family wedding of one of my cousins. It's in the childhood church where I learned to say, serve a mass and where I grew up. And um, Maria and Jeff are my little brother and sister who are now working at the same country club where I had had this panic attack and seen the doctor a couple years earlier, where um, the my first deposition is approaching with where I will have to face this doctor for the first time since um, seeing him when I had that panic attack. I chuckled as the wedding guests filled St. Boniface. When I'd gone to daily mass there from first to third grades, the girls sat in the pews that were now the bride's side. I looked to the groom's side where I used to sit with the boys and saw Dr. Laus. I wanted to leave, but this was my family, not his. In childhood, my cousin had been like a sister 
As teens, we'd watched our dad's relationship crumble under the weight of the struggling family business. We vowed to remain close, but had hardly spoken since high school. She needed to see that I still loved her. I wasn't going to miss her wedding. What the hell is he doing here? I asked my parents after the wedding. They pulled me around the side of the church and apologized. They'd forgotten that the groom's mother was Laos's nurse. They understood if I needed to skip the reception, but couldn't do the same. That could break the fragile peace between dad and my uncle. Damn Laos, I said. If he thinks he can push me out of my own family, he's wrong. Later, at the Clinton Country Club, I sat at a table, ignoring my relatives whooping it up on the dance floor. A waitress I'd worked with there three summers earlier when I'd seen Laos and lost it, reached over my shoulder to fill my water. Welcome home, Tom, she said over the 80s dance mix. You too. My voice sounded metallic, flat, like a cracked cymbal. Under the white tablecloth, my fingertips dug into my palms. Laos sat a few tables behind me. Across the table, my brother Jeff, 17 but still shy, stamped his fingerprints into the softened rim of the centerpiece's candle. Maria, now a woman of 20, danced with dad, keeping tabs from over his shoulder. At weddings, I usually danced with everyone. I, I overheard some cousins asking my mom what was wrong with me. As she ushered them off, I heard, maybe an old girlfriend's here. The music pounded. Panic, like a boiling acid, rolled between my heart and gut, spreading into my thighs and biceps, my neck my, and jaw. When it reached my eyes, I'd cry. Everyone would see how damaged I was and know that I couldn't face Laos. I pushed away from the table. The tears streamed down my cheeks like the molten wax of a damaged altar candle. With my eyes fixed to the green carpeting, I passed the doctor's table, rushed down the stairway, around the landing into the basement. Everything was dark. The golfers had finished their day, leaving the locker room and weight rooms empty. I crumbled into a ball by the rack of dumbbells. After a few minutes, I felt my father's arms cradling me. His fingers stroked my hair. His tears cooled the back of my neck. No words, only his warmth, his grief, his oversplashed cologne. He'd been led to me by Maria and Jeff, who waited tables at the club and knew where I might be. After what seemed like minutes of sensory confusion, my ears began working again. I heard Dad's voice beseeching God to calm me. Take his pain and give it to me, he prayed. His sob, as his sobs increased, mine decreased. My gasps became breaths. My skin cooled. I opened my eyes. Backlit from the hallway, Maria and Jeff watched in shock. Dad waved them over. As we hugged, I realized what I had to do. I needed to leave, but not until I'd spoken to Laos. I said, if I can't confront him now, how will I face him in court? Maria latched onto my hand. I'm going with you. We ascended the stairs and pressed through the crowded banquet hall to Laos's table. Her grip tightened as he looked up. His pasty lip drooped from his mustache. This time he was the one caught off guard. I inhaled his stench. It filled me with power. I want you to know I pray for you every day. It was the truth. Twice a day during morning prayer, I prayed for him to repent for his patience. I prayed for him to repent and for his patience protection. At night, 
I prayed for his peace and healing and, and to be able to forgive him. But now, seeing his frightened, pathetic face, I felt pity. I tried to walk away, but Maria's hand tethered me. She remained frozen in his gaze. Without looking back, I nudged her. We escaped through a side door that opened onto a tea box and fairway. The sun had set, leaving the sky a bruised violet. In the safety of my Ford Escort, I finally looked at Maria. Black tears streaked her ivory cheeks. I pulled her into an embrace. She trembled. It's okay, I lied. He licked his lips, she said. After you turned to leave, that sick fucker ran his tongue across his lips. I pounded my fists into the steering wheel and screamed. For Laos hadn't abused only me. He'd abused my family. Yeah. So that was yeah. one of the things that I realized at that moment is how my entire family had been abused by this man. And then it had really been groomed. And not only that, but the entire um, parish community that we were part of, he was in the same church as us. So I had to sit there and watch him go to communion every week. And he'd walk past us. I mean, he had the whole city groomed that he was this good guy and had this whole underworld of abuse that he was committing. And I was not the only one. Other victims have come forward over the years. And this man was definitely, he was a classic pedophile. He wasn't just an ephibophile who went after 14 or 15 year olds. He, he went after younger kids too. So it's pretty sad, but he had the whole community fooled as did these priests. I mean, grooming happens to an entire community. It doesn't just happen to the victim. So that's what I wanted to get show kind of in that piece tonight. Yeah, the it's interesting. There's this whole theme of of masks and um, you know um, acting. So acting mm -hmm. is both a letting go and a mask, right? And so yeah. I wanted to talk about that. You were a theater major, yeah. like I. You weren't a religion major. You weren't. You didn't know you were going to go into the priesthood from an early age. You weren't trying to solve the big questions of life. You were a performer, you a singer, actor. Now, how did how did that lead into your vocation? Yeah, well, I was always a seeker, like of truth. And I was always like asking the hard questions. And one of the things that drew me to theater was trying to understand a character and that you have to really dig into and find a part of yourself that identifies with whatever character you are playing. You have to find, to play it real, to play that character realistically and honestly, you have to act from real and honest emotions. And there are a lot of different ways that you learn to do this in acting, but what it all comes down to is being, really being in the present moment and getting into a character and being fully present and reacting honestly and vulnerably to people on stage. And so you can see how the vulnerability training that I was getting in acting would break down those psychological barriers that I had around having been abused. I didn't want to access those memories and then I started to, and then it messed me up. And it's very similar 
in spirituality, you, you, um, and in ministry, being present is a huge part of it. Um, being present in your prayer, being completely focused and being vulnerable to God and God's will and opening yourself up to this idea of what God wants for you. And there's also in ministry, in counseling, you're being present. It's very similar to acting. It's about listening and being empathetic and in the moment trying to understand the other person. So this, these things were all very similar. And I knew this, I was seeing this as I was learning about prayer and spirituality and then about counseling. And I was always like, this is just like acting in so many ways. And so that, I think that answers your question, right? I think, do you have a follow-up? That is fascinating that? because, it, you know, that is the best of, I mean, that's taking, taking that art form very seriously. You know, that it's not just a, um, a moment to try on somebody else's hat. It's, it's a connection uh, and a demand of, of the self. Mm -hmm. So that makes perfect sense. And then I wanted to ask about um, your, I mean, you were in my fiction writing class and you were actually writing stories uh, on these themes. So I wanted to talk about, and one of the questions that we got as well was a question about the decision, oh, the decision to write memoir. I don't know why that just, I just did something. Do not do that. Did I pop out? Are you still with me? Yeah, you're here. Can you hear me? Yeah, I see you. You're here. Okay, I've just done something. I'll, I'll worry about that later. Okay. I can, I can so still the see the questions is, too. Is good. The question is, was about um, the decision, you know, some writer questions. So the decision to just tell them, tell the memoir, tell the story as it happened. Can you talk about that? Yes. The, so when I went back to, so what happened when I left the priesthood and you know, I don't want to give away too much because if I can figure out how to be disciplined enough to write another book, I'm going to. But if I, I needed to write this story. I, I had to tell my story. It was never a matter of yes or no. I, I'm a storyteller. It's a prophet. I mean, it's like essential to my being. I had to tell it. I had to get my truth out there because I knew there would be other people that were in a similar situation as me, that if they could know my experience, maybe it would help them. It just never dawned on me to not speak out and to not write about this. That said, um, when I moved to Los Angeles, um, after I'd left the priesthood, I was up in Washington State. Well, I was all over the place, but I spent a year in Washington State and I wrote down everything I could remember because I that was the first act, uh, writing exercise I gave myself was if I'm going to be a writer and I wanted to be a screenwriter, I need to be able to build scenes with my own life and be able to explain my own life on the page. And so I did that and I went to Los Angeles. I also wrote and then I wrote a screenplay that was a fictionalized version about what happened to me. And I started with the scene in the bishop's office where I was ordered to cover things up. 
And I wrote, started writing from the perspectives of the three priests that were ordering me to do this. And I had seen that that's how they wrote the movie Crash was they got someone got carjacked and they wrote it from the perspective of the carjacker and then started writing it from all the other characters perspectives. And I wrote this fiction um, screenplay called Fire in the Priory about all these priests. And there was only like one scene that was real in my life and the rest of it was all fiction that built from that. When I got to LA, it was one of like three screenplays I was shopping around and everyone liked it, but they were like, this is a novel. So I wrote it as a novel. And when I went back to school in 09 at USC and was in your class, my intention was to write, to um, rewrite that novel as my thesis and um, to focus on screenwriting and fiction writing. But my professors were hearing me that this was my story and they were hearing bits of my, and then I started getting into the nonfiction classes and they were like, you should really write your own story. Don't do a fiction because it's, you, and I, then I tried writing it with like all these different threads and time jumps. And everyone was like, no, it's just, it's a good story, single linear line. You don't need to try to doll it up. This is a crazy story and you need to tell it. So that's how we got to, and then I started over from scratch. I did not go back to the old kind of autobiography. I just, it was more like a diction or a diary entry. That first book that I wrote, memoir, this I started over from scratch. And, and I utilized, the, I utilized the tools. I utilized the tools that you equipped me with, you and my other professors. So like a lot of those tools. And how do you build a scene? How do you shape a character? How do you... Um, shape whole sections of a book so that, you know, at the end of each chapter, this is one of Janet's rules, at the end of each chapter, something must change that changes everything about the way the character understands things and propels everything into a new direction in the new chapter. And other rules like leave as soon as you enter as late as you can, leave as early as you can. That dialogue cannot have exposition. It has to be active. I mean, so many lessons, Janet, that you taught me and all the synesthesia exercises we did. And just, I would go down to the La Brea Tar Pits and just watch people and write and describe them and try to describe the scenes and the scene and so many good tools that you all equipped me with to, to work on this book. Oh, so good. Um, do you think that, um, the way the sex is described in the book is something that is really, it's very blunt, I gotta say. You know, it's, it's not romantic, it's not porny, it's not uh, euphemistic, um, and it, to me, it, you know, it's, it makes the book a really hard it's really tough. It's a tough book. You're you're making people look at stuff. It's like I'm not going to doll it up. I'm not going to romanticize this or or close the curtain. You know. Yeah. I actually, when you said euphemistic, I mean that was one of the things that drove me nuts in the confessional was that people would use all these euphemisms and they and I would always respond, well, so you masturbated, and they'd be like, oh, Father, you can't say that. I'm like. Well, if you can't name 
what it is by its real name, how can you, how can you work on it? Because um, people would give you all sorts of euphemisms. And um, when I wrote this book, because it's about sexual abuse and sexual healing and formation, and I did not want to write it. I wanted, I wasn't going to use euphemisms. I wanted it to be as direct as possible because I, I had never seen, I had never read a spiritual memoir or um, an account of a priest or seminarian that, that really went into the mechanics of celibacy at the sexual genital level. And I wanted to tell that story and I had to because that's where I was wounded. That's where my deepest wounds were, was in that part of my being. So in recreating those memories, which is the art of memoir, you know, is, is trying to recreate memories and have people experience them as you, I did not want to be projecting anything back onto what I was writing. I wanted to recreate it as I had experienced it. So I used journals that I had from those years and pictures and a lot of things to really try to rebuild the scenes and so that people could enter my memories. And in that sense, the sex needed to be described accurately and because my emotions are all over the place. So I, I felt like the sex needed to be very accurate when I wrote it. And, and, and I mean, and it, I mean, abuse is pretty, the abuse I experienced was pretty procedural. So that was kind of my experience of sex as a young person was it was very procedural. So that may have affected some it, of the way I wrote about it as well. Well, it's just the, the way boundaries are crossed mm -hmm. is very subtle. And if you, you know, the fact that you were able to to really chronicle what happens, you know, because you think, wow, how could somebody fall for that? Well, well, Johnny, here's how it happens. You know, I, I was reading a, a book about um, a girl in high school who is um, groomed and then abused by a teacher. And I mean, it's like, unless you're getting that how those boundaries are crossed and having been a, a an abuse survivor boundaries were a look like a terrific issue you know like that was like where do you draw the line it it and add to that that within the seminary system talk of boundaries and crossing boundaries and oh that's a boundary violation i mean these are terms that are constantly used in seminary they're, they're used to, they manipulate that whole concept as well. And so when I was finally to the point in my life where I psychologically accepted that I was gay and that this was a gift and that it was a good thing, physically, it took me longer to get there. I had to fall in love and experience sex with a peer, you know, to really feel at a physical level and a spiritual level that there was nothing wrong with me, but intellectually, I understood that there was nothing wrong with me. And I really started pushing my mentors 
because I wanted to know if they were gay. I needed positive role models. And every time I pushed, they'd be like, oh, that's a boundary violation. And it's like, okay, but you've been you've been violating my boundaries for years. And it's just as a system, and it was very messed up. Another thing too that they did with sexuality is that at the same time they're teaching us it's a gift and all of these things, they treated our sexuality as if it were an addiction. And so it was really the way we were dealing with the genitality and the urges we were having was treating them as if we were all addicted to sex, which was another very dysfunctional and harmful thing that has taken, you know, that takes decades to recover from. I mean, I know from talking with my, my, um, brothers from seminary. Um, I wish I could say sisters too, but you know, that's not the experience in the Catholic church, but with the other guys I'm close to that I've stayed close to have left. I mean, we all suffer major, um, sexual and, and psychological, um, scars and abuses that we had. And so it's very, it's, it's, it's an ongoing struggle still. I feel we all feel like we're stunted in our growth in a way and in our ability to have intimate relationships. And I don't know if that's just a gay experience too, being in the closet growing up and not being able to just date normally, like out of the closet, like straight people got to, we never really had an adolescence. And so, I mean, we joke, I, my husband and I always joke that, you know, our, how many gay years we have. So, you know, I came out in what, 2004. So on May 23rd, I turned 16 gay years. And it's sometimes I still feel like a 16 year old when it comes to my relationships. And some of the priests you were saying are, had that as well, that they had, had a very juvenile Yes, even more. The young area. Yes, even more so that, um, especially like the pre-Vatican II church where they would go into seminary in middle school or high school. And so they were, they basically, a, a lot of priests had no sexual development from the time they were prepubescent or pubescent, or they shut it down shortly thereafter. And so there's a reason that these, those that are predators then suddenly identify with 14 year olds or like my perpetrator with 18 to 20 year olds. And then they think that what they're doing is helping them, but they're really just trying to help themselves and to get off on you. But they, they twist it around as if, well, they're just, I'm just like them. They're just like me and I'm helping them. And this is good for us. It's God's will. It's what God wants. And that's how they justify these atrocious things they do to people. Sorry to cut in. No, that's all good. Um, I wanted to just start taking some questions, um, if that's all right with you both. Yeah, I'm going to bring the chat back up. All right. So um, can we start with a question from your dad, Tom? Oh, sure. <laughs> Hi, Dad. Um, so Tom's dad would like to know, can you tell us if that's your chin or someone else's chin on the cover of your book? Well, I think it's a cross between your chin and mom's chin, but this is my chin. 
So I'm, I'm in disguise now. I don't want to be recognized in public. Oh yeah, Janet, we need to get a picture quick. <laughs> we should do that. All right, everybody, hold your books up. <laughs> so this is my chin. Yes, this was my ordination picture. So yes, obviously I did not have a rainbow collar on at the time. <laughs> All right, next we have a question from Crystal. What was the aha moment that made you decide you needed to get your story out there? What advice do you have for others who wanna tell their story but have no idea where to start? Yeah, there was, there was never, um, like I said before, there was never an aha moment. I just, I just, I've always been a storyteller and I became a good writer in, graduate school. I mean, I was in college for 10 years before I was a priest. And as a preacher, you're writing every week. I just had to tell the story. There wasn't an aha moment. What I think there was, what was the second part to that question? I thought there was a second part. Let me bring those up. Um, what oh, advice? Others, yeah. I, hey, my advice is just sit down and start writing. That's all you can do is just write. Just like I did, I sat down and tried to write down everything I could remember from my life. And I, I know that's the best place to start, but you just have to start writing and start trying and read good memoirs, read fiction, read things that that you wanna write like and start getting a writer's group, start playing around with your writing tool and work on it. All right, next a question from David. Can you talk about your current relationship with Catholicism and how the book has been received by your fellow seminarians like Nick and Abdel and your family? Yeah, so I am not Catholic. Um, I'm not religious at all anymore. And um, my journey out of faith was, oh my goodness, you guys, a bald eagle just flew right in front of my window that I'm sitting in front what? of. That was cool. That's got to be a sign of something. Actually, I think it was a turkey vulture. <laughs> That's more appropriate. But um, I, I don't, I, my relationship is I am a nun. I don't have any faith or religion. I'm much better off. I'm happier. I'm more content. I have more urgency to do good in my life, not believing that there's something more to reward me after. Um, and how how has that affected my relationships um you know how has the book been received it's that i'm not in touch with very many people anymore who are in the book um when i came out of the closet and left i lost pretty much my entire community in the church and my friends um when you leave as a priest, you're kind of shunned. I mean, people are all in the closet themselves. And so you coming out is a huge threat to their closet. And so people cut you off. They, they just, you just disappear. And some people chew you out. And then it's like, I'm not taking that abuse anymore. And the same thing then happened over the years in my family as well as, um, and you, you lose, friends from college that I was friends with for over a decade, um, that there are relationships in my family that are no longer in existence because I'm gay and out of the closet and an atheist. So 
there is a price to pay for living your truth and it's worth it. I mean, if people can't love you as you are and accept you, then move on. If they browbeat you and constantly beat you down, you don't deserve that abuse. And so I, I got to the point where it's like, I'm, I'm not going to let those people who are conservative Catholics or people in the family who think you have to stay Catholic, I'm not going to let them be, they became my perpetrators then. They became the voice of my perpetrators and were throwing all the things on me that my perpetrators had all those years. So I, I had to make the decision that I'm not going to engage those people anymore. And it's a difficult place to, to be. So that's thank good question. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have a question from Barbara. Did you see any spiritual idealism in your formation as a priest? Was there any encouragement to follow Jesus with his love and idealism? Um, oh yeah, I mean, if you read the book, my, my spirituality was very incarnate. I mean, I wanted, it was very much based on the incarnation that God made God's self known in a human being in Jesus. And of course, I mean, I, I, Jesus was idealized and wanted to live my life and serve people as Jesus did. And, and it was deeper than that, though. I wanted an incarnate relationship with God. I wanted to physically know and feel God. I mean, that's part of that mysticism that, that, that came out in my spirituality there. All right. And then we have one from Amy. Love the book so much. Amazingly honest and raw. Please tell me you're working on the sequel that will discuss your journey from entering residential therapy to getting your master's, meeting Bruce, and living your true life. <laughs> I've had a sequel mapped out in my head. It, it changes periodically. But yes, I mean, the next, I really wanted to tell the full story of the journey into the priesthood and then out of faith and through this kind of the priest interrupted chapter, which is going into South, the South Down Institute after this. So I went into a six month residential program up in Canada for priests and ministers and nuns and people of all, of all um, religions or denominations as well. And was there for six months in therapy and yeah, there's an entire book just in that experience itself. So, and then I embarked on a journey after that where I was finally content with myself and just traveled the country for six months, hiking and camping. And there were some, and that's where I really, my spiritual awakening, I guess, to becoming an atheist really happened. And I found that freedom. And yeah, there's a, there's a, there's another book there. So Amy, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I don't, Amy had said something to me about one of the lines she absolutely loved in the book. <laughs> it's, I don't know, Janet, if you experienced this, but as I reread it, it's been a while, you know, I hadn't read it since I read the proof. And so it was like six or eight months ago. There are lines that I wrote that now I'm like, I don't know, could I ever write a line like that again <laughs> and i'm sure i can but it's like that's so good how did i ever write that do you experience that oh i don't know if your sound's on oh yeah 
Yeah, you forget how much work you for, forget how much work you put into every sentence. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then it's just like, how did I write that? Well, <laughs> it took some time. Yeah. Yeah. Amy's favorite line was he was going to smother me with honey until I choked. <laughs> it's a good line. <laughs> Um, I'm going to answer Rita's question. How does one purchase a signed book? We were talking a little bit about this, how we would try to do it. Um, you can order the book from Skylight um, and we will mail it to you wherever you like. Uh, Tom, I'll let you take it if, if you have a suggestion for how to get that book signed. Yeah, what I would say is just because of the pandemic and we can't be in person, this is kind of tough. So order the book, get it delivered to yourself. Um, then, then contact me via my website, tomrestrelli.com, which if you message me there, I'll get the message. Then I can, you can mail it to me with the return postage and send it to me and I'll sign it and I'll send it back to you. Perfect. Yeah. Um, all right, so then we have one last question here from Abdel. How does your story lift and empower intersectionality voices that need to be heard right now? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> you know, there is so much going on right now. And one of the things that really, one of the things if we had a lot of time, or I'd read a section if we had more time, but is that there's a lot going on with Black Lives Matter and the call for police reform that was felt very, feels very similar to me from when the sexual abuse crisis broke out in the church. And I'm not equating the two things. Obviously, racism is, is much more system, systematized in the white supremacy into our systems in the United States and our entire country and history. But homophobia is the same way in the Catholic church. And when the sexual abuse crisis broke out, everyone started attacking the gay priests, the seminarians, the celibates, everybody on the right had said it was because they're gay, gays abuse children. Everybody on the left said, well, it's because celibates are stunted. And, and so it's like all these things were happening and we were being attacked from all sides and everyone's like, all priests are pedophiles. And it's, and I was on like this, I was a victim of abuse. Plus I was becoming a priest and I was feeling it from all sides. And I've seen similar things happen with police. Like everyone's like, well, the good police don't beat up on the good police. I'm like, well, let's see the good police start throwing themselves in front of the bullets and the pepper spray. Let's see them start protecting the people who are under attack. And that's what I tried to do as a priest. I was trying to change the system and it nearly killed me, you know, and, and I failed and so I had to leave because the system wasn't going to change. And so there's this intersectionality with abuses now that are happening in the police force that the system needs absolutely to change, fundamentally change. And there are and there are experiences as an LGBTQ person that that overlap and intersect with experiences of racism for black indigenous people of color. And so I think that in this book, while this experience is going to be through my white, cis, gay, privileged, Catholic upbringing perspective, 
it's it's still there are universal experiences that run through this book that I think will appeal and give people something to reflect upon within what we're experiencing right now at this moment in history. And and I think that people hopefully it will be something that will empower people to speak out because the abuses in the church continue. I mean, they continue to work with the conservative coalition or the compassionate conservatives or the Republican party, the anti-abortionists to empower these racists into office in our country. And the Catholic church and the police system had a very, very close relationship and still do about covering up sexual abuse and intimidating victims. So there's a huge intersectionality there. So it's I could go on and on about that. That's a really profound question and there's much more to it. And I, I know my answer is limited. That's not the be all and end all. That's just a beginning for some things to start thinking about because there's Ton, there's so much intersection, intersectionality in all of this. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tom. Um, yeah. Janet, before we kind of say our goodbyes, is there anything else you want to talk about or ask Tom? Um, yeah, there was one question that I see on the side scroll about the clergy project. Do you know about the clergy project? Yeah, I was one of the founding members of the clergy project. I didn't, it, it was one of the first people that joined. Um, the clergy project is a, basically, it's a support network for people who are either still in ministry or who have left that are no longer religious believers. They no longer, they're, they're agnostic, atheist. They no longer believe. And it's a network that will, that offers support and peer support to those individuals. So some people, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't probably imagine this, but there are ministers and priests out there who no longer believe, but they have to pay the bills. They have a family that's integrated into the community, you know, so they stay. And so they need support as well as those who leave, because when you start over, especially in a, something like the Catholic church, or if you were, I was a diocesan priest, but it's the same if you were like a member of a religious order, that would be almost even be harder because you'd have been cloistered if you're in a cloistered order and then you're outcast and you're on your own out in the world. So it's a support, it's a support for all of those people. That is the clergy project. And if, Anybody is, out there is um, in that situation, you know, Google it or email me and I'll send you the link. But it, the, there were um, the Freedom From Religion Foundation. I think if I remember correctly, Dan Barker, who is the head of that, and Linda Lascola, who is a researcher who wrote this book called, called Caught in the Pulpit, which was about, she did research about people who no longer believed but who were still ministers and i was featured in her book i was somebody who had left but um in the interviewing i think she was the impetus along with a few other people behind we need to support these people and built this clergy project for that and that's how i was pulled into it right at the beginning 
That's a great way to um, you know, send our listeners back out into the world, knowing knowing they can uh, learn more about the clergy project. Thank you for explaining that. Yeah, and yeah, happy Pride, everybody! Thank you so yes, much. Happy Pride! <laughs> oh, somebody's um, asking what the name of the book is. Um, I, I think it was called call, call, here. It's Linda Lascola. Um, yeah, caught in the pulpit. Somebody said yes, so that is correct. Great. Well, Tom, is there anything else you want to say to the audience? Just, I want to thank um, everybody for being here tonight and for reading and um, and it just, especially those of you who have been here and supported me throughout the years. Um, and Janet, thank you so much. You've been one of my cheerleaders. Thanks to all the MPW faculty at USC who have continued to be cheerleaders for me over the year and helped me um, continue this battle to get this book out there because it took years to get someone to finally publish this book. And thanks, thank you, Skylight. Thank you. Maddie. You're very welcome. Well, thank you all so much for being here. This was a pretty incredible conversation and discussion. So I, I feel really uh, privileged to be a part of it. And I'm so glad that um, we had such a great interactive audience. Thank you all so much for your contributions. Um, you made this really special. Uh, I just want to say, if you like our events, go ahead and follow us up on our Crowdcast page. Um, order Tom's book from skylightbooks.com. We'll figure out how to get you a signed copy. Um, this event was also recorded. So if you want to replay it, um, it will it will live on our Crowdcast page. You can come back and check it out in just a couple of minutes after we say goodbye. It'll be there. You can share it around. Um, yeah, so I think I think it's time for us to say goodbye. Um, but I'm so glad you all were here. Uh, Janet, thank you so much for your thoughtful questions. Um, Tom, thank you. Thank you, thank you for sharing your work and your story with us. Um, this is, this is congratulations. Um, it's, it's a real achievement. So. We're really glad we got to host you tonight. Thank you so much. It means a lot to be able to be a part of the LA writing community again. I really miss it. So thank you very much. And I want to say you have a standing invitation to read in the store in person whenever we can do that again. So um, post pandemic, we're going to LA, people. Yeah, let's see everybody back in the store. Uh, you know, in a year and a half, two years. <laughs> All right. Well, everyone, have a good night. Take care read and uh, we'll see you at the next the next one of these things so long bye thank you for listening to the skylight books podcast series please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on twitter and instagram also don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations you can find us on podbean itunes and spotify Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.